0: With you out here in York, what a wonderful ride this morning! I was really praising God as I was driving along out here this morning. And I never came back through 24 and uh, Woodland and so forth. This 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 route over the mountain, my GPS sent me that way. I used to always come in to uh, York there around 83 and take the. I guess Woodland coming up the other way, and it was a beautiful drive out here this morning, so I really was praising God as we came out here this morning. So good to be with you. Uh, as Tim said, I'm the director of church planting for the Bible Fellowship Church, Church Extension Ministries, and I just want to take some time this morning to introduce you, and I think he has a PowerPoint up there. I'm going to move over here a second, uh, to introduce you to your Church planting mission. And I say your, and I even have it capitalized up there in that first uh, slide there, because these are your BFC church planting missionaries. These are the men that are directly charged with extending the Bible Fellowship Church and planting new Bible Fellowship Churches, reaching people with the gospel and planting new Bible Fellowship Churches. The reason I say that is because our mission, our vision statement for the BFC says we want to be an ever expanding fellowship of churches I'm really convinced biblically that there's only one way to be that ever expanding fellowship of churches and that is through evangelism and then making disciples through the planting of churches bringing people into the church and so that's really what we're about we're about evangelization and church planting but there's two other caveats uh, to what we do also which I'll mention at the end of this uh, at the end of these slides but uh, these are just some of our men uh, not all of them. If you want to go back there, Tim, you're jumping ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> uh, these are some of our men. We get together three times a year. We have two training days and one round table. We just had a training day this past week, and it really was great. We had a panel of five former church planters, recent church planters, that graduated their works and brought them into the denomination. And our guy said, we really would like to hear from former church planters with regard to uh, some of the things they went through in preparation for uh, growing the work and graduating into the Bible Fellowship Church. So we had that panel discussion this last week, and it, it was really, really great. But you have a great group of energetic and gifted church planters. Years ago, when I was on the board of Church Extension, along with Ken Good some years ago, uh... we we really didn't have we really didn't qualify individuals according to their gifts their natural abilities and their talents to be church planters we kind of if we had a an opening we we took someone who was available and put them in there well we don't do that anymore as a matter of fact we turn away as many men as we call to be church planters because they're not gifted to be church planters the crew we have now and who make up your church planting family are very gifted specifically to do church planting. Uh, Stephen Diaz is uh, our church planter in South Allentown. Stephen was a missionary uh, overseas in Spain, came back here. He was not in the Bible Fellowship Church, but uh, learned about our need for a church planter up in South Allentown due to the fact that Elliot Ramos, who was, who was there, Uh, moved to North Carolina to help his father with a church plant down, or a church down there. And he learned about our need. His wife, uh, Angelica, is a Venezuelan. And um, he answered the call to be our church planter. He was doing church planting with a team in Spain, a successful church planting team. And so we're glad that we have Stephen on board there in South Allentown. I'm going to give you some prayer requests. You might want to write down some of these prayer requests as we go along here, at least... Log them in your brain so you can, you can uh, pray for these individuals. But pray for Stephen. Uh, this church is developing into somewhat of a multicultural church, uh, not just a Hispanic church plant. Uh, Anglos are coming in. Some other ethnic groups are coming in. So pray that Steve would have the wisdom to uh, see where the Holy Spirit's uh, bringing this to blending them together and, and worshiping together and also being very... Uh, uh, uh... very much uh, an active part of the community that they're in there too uh... Aaron sussex down in adams county and aaron uh... is uh, uh... ministering has been ministering down there for the past three and a half four years now uh... we're we're going through kind of a transition there in adams county pray for aaron as he looks for the lord's will for the future and what that all is going to look like down there in adams county Uh, They will be launching Sunday evening services in Gettysburg uh, coming up in November. And so pray for that also as to what the Lord has in store for that work down there as they branch out and move into Gettysburg a little bit more. Uh, Brad Boyer is really an answer to prayer. Uh, Keith Strunk uh, was the church planter down in Cape May Courthouse uh, for a few years. And then Keith was called to be the pastor at our Hellertown Bible Fellowship Church. Hellertown was a former church plant of ours. Uh, We were looking for almost seven months for somebody to replace Keith down there. The work had grown and developed and really started to move ahead. And so we wanted somebody to come in and pick that baton up and start running with it uh, and continue to build that work down there. And Brad was an elder at our Sinking Spring Bible Fellowship Church just this past year. He uh, graduated from Lancaster Bible College uh, since the Lord's call to go into ministry and really was leaning towards church planning. When we assessed him and his wife, uh, we really found that he had the gifts to be a church planner. And so we called Brad. Uh, I think it was June 1st. Brad started down in Cape May and has been doing really well down there. The work is growing and developing. Uh, pray for Vicky, his wife. His wife needs to find a job down there in that area. And she is now working in Berks County. She's a school teacher and IT director in the Governor Mifflin School District. So pray that she would find work down there in Cape May so she can be down there with him full time. Uh, she teaches during the week over near Reading and Governor Mifflin and then goes down there on weekends and then comes back again. So pray that she would find a position down there to help them out. Uh, Josh DePeach, this is an exciting, uh, effort that we're doing here. Uh, We have not been in a large metro urban area for years, and we're starting to work down there in Philadelphia, the Germantown Mount Airy section of Philadelphia. Uh, Joshua and Julie uh, are down there now, and they're trying to gather a core group in that Germantown Mount Airy section. And uh, Joshua is a wonderfully gifted individual. Uh, Pray that they would get that core group together. Uh, This is really special to me because Julie there, Her family, the Rieger family, were part of our Quakertown church when I pastored in Quakertown. And there in Quakertown, um, you know, I baptized her, uh, dedicated her to the Lord. Um, It was really neat then to see 20 years later, or close to that anyways, uh, some 20 years later her come back onto the scene married and becoming a wife to one of our church planters. So I I thank God for that and, and praise him for that connection. Our Spanish contingent really is headed up by Carlos Rodriguez. Carlos came to us about 10 years ago from Guadalajara, Mexico. Didn't know a person in in Reading. We put together a resource team from the churches in Berks County around him. And Carlos today at 1 o'clock will be holding services to about 170, 180 people. And uh, now there are some other men starting to be attracted to Carlos's ministry, roberto martinez and marcos Anglis. his son diego up there is a freshman at lbc lancaster bible college and his son diego is now on staff also carlos is create, carlos is creating a real training ground for hispanic ministers pastors for our denomination and church planners for that fact so pray for carlos as he works with these men and further develops this hispanic ministry well we moved into florida and uh, Naples, Florida. And we would like some people to go down and help out. How many of you would like to go down? There you go. Helen's the first one to sign up. Who else? Okay. Uh, now, we did move into Florida. And praise God for that. Jason Filbert uh, gathered. He was a youth pastor down there in a church plant. And then felt God was calling him to plant a church. And so he's gathered uh, family, friends, other individuals together, a group of about 35 people now that he's meeting with on on a regular basis, having Bible study with, haven't launched Sunday services yet. That'll be probably about eight to nine months down the road till they launch services. Uh, but we have this uh, witness and testimony of the Bible Fellowship Church in southwest Florida. And just pray that that continues to go well. Pray for Anna, his wife. She's expecting their first child. Uh, they just got married about a year ago. and They're expecting their first child in November. So pray that that goes well and that the pregnancy goes well. Uh, Tim Zook, former church planter in Hellertown, planted the Hellertown Bible Fellowship Church, uh, now is uh, over in Forks Township. Pennsylvania. That's uh, eastern Pennsylvania near uh, uh, Easton, Easton, Pennsylvania. And uh, they just launched public services two weeks ago. It was a fantastic time and launched. They had about 125 people there. Uh, and since that time, they've been able to maintain close to that amount of people uh, in their church in the last three weeks. And so pray that this continues to grow and develop uh, there in Forks Township. Uh, Scott Wright is down in Audubon, uh, on 4, 422, all 422 on the road to King of Prussia down there. And Scott moved into the Audubon YM, YMCA with his group. Uh, pray for Scott. He has Lyme disease. And so he's battling that right now. It really fatigues him at times. Uh, pray for Scott to be healthy and strong and get through this bout with Lyme disease. Strange disease. Ron Smith, Ron Smith is a daughter church plant. Uh, I shouldn't say Ron Smith is a daughter church plant, but the church plant that Ron Smith is heading, heading up is a daughter church plant from our Newark, Delaware Bible Fellowship Church. And this is one of the things that we've been trying to really beat the drum on in the past number of years. And that is churches planting churches. Uh, That's the New Testament model. Uh, to give up ourselves, sacrifice ourselves, release our people into communities where a good uh, testimony like the BFC should be planted. And Ron went out from the Newark, Delaware Church. They gave up 30-some people to go with him. And now after three years, that work is ready to graduate. We'll be doing assessments down there, assessments of elders, their committed participant group, and their financials in November. If they go well, which I assume that they will, that church will be brought into that, should say, Mission Church, church plant we call Mission Churches. That Mission Church will be brought into the denomination next, uh, next April at our conference, at our BFC conference. That will be another church uh, added to our denomination. Now, we need to keep doing that, and I, I'll say that we need to keep doing that because there's a significant percentage of our churches that are really struggling right now, in decline and struggling and uh, this past year we've seen one church close our church in connecticut we see another church merging with one of our bible fellowship another bible fellowship church and so we really need to keep planting new bible fellowship churches if the bfc is going to grow and develop and keep on being a testimony as a denomination and so pray that we will continue to graduate mission churches to become uh, particular churches in the BFC. Well, Freddie Chi, down in Villa Magna, Mexico, which is right outside of Merida, Merida was our first international Bible fellowship church. Freddie Chi and his work over in Villa Magna is our first international church plant. And so, pray for Freddie. They're growing, they're developing. Uh, that building behind them is where they meet. They used to live upstairs. And then they grew out of the place uh, because they got getting so many people coming in. So they moved into another home in the Via Magna area. But pray for Freddie. He has, he has great challenges down there, and um, we're excited for what he's doing there. We need a church planter for Woolwich Township. This was a, a partnership church plant between our Woodbury Heights, New Jersey church and our Wallingford, Pennsylvania church. Uh, Dan Williams has embarked on trying to start the church in Woolwich, uh, doing it part-time, pastoring Woodbury and part-time planting the church in Woolwich. It didn't work out. Uh, It was just too demanding on him. And so the two churches have agreed that they will still support a church plant there in Woolwich. We're looking for someone to go there and plant that church. So pray that God would raise that individual up. Uh, Aaron Smith is another daughter church plant. He's leading a a church plant in northern Lehigh. It was a former Walnutport church that was, uh, you might say, salvaged, really, uh, and brought into a church planting setting. And so uh, Whitehall Bible Fellowship Church is now daughtering this church plant and supporting. And Aaron also is the youth uh, pastor at Whitehall, but he's also planting the church over in in, uh, northern Lehigh. It's going well, too. So pray for them. We have some projected church plants coming up. Uh, we will be, uh, we've been holding prayer meetings in the Lancaster and Lebanon, uh, region of the BFC. Uh, we've been holding prayer meetings at the various churches, uh, to encourage them to pray for our next Hispanic church plant in the city of Lancaster. Lancaster is about close to 50% Hispanic now. Reading, uh, where Carlos is, is about 72% uh, Hispanic. And so our uh, the Hispanic population is growing and growing and growing. And so we're looking at Lancaster as our next uh, Hispanic church plant. And the pieces are starting. God is starting to bring the pieces together on this. Uh, so pray that that would uh, really develop and we'd see another Hispanic church plant in the city of Lancaster. I, I do want to make mention of something also out there. In the North Texas, I have a table with the prayer letters of all these guys here. If you're interested in learning more about one or two of these individuals, stop by, pick up their prayer letters, sign up the sheet out there. Uh that's our Antiochian report. We send out a weekly newsletter and thank you brother Bickle, for telling me that you read that. So I appreciate that. You know, that's encouraging. Uh but that gives you a lot of information about what's going on in the BFC. But uh there you also see a prayer letter out there for Elliot Ramos. I mentioned Elliot Ramos was our former church planting uh, planter in Allentown. We, because of the, the, the development of Hispanic ministries, and it's just really, really enlarging uh, week by week. Uh, this past week, I was with our Hispanic task force, and then yesterday, I was with uh, uh, an individual, uh, Roberto Martinez, the fellow I mentioned earlier, who wants to get credentials now. We have four men who are ordained, Hispanic men who are ordained in the BFC. We have four men who are seeking credentials in the BFC to become pastors and church planters. We have three, soon to be four, Hispanic church plants. We have a Hispanic church, and we have people, Hispanic men continuing to knock on our door and look for opportunities for ministry with us. I can't handle all that. I don't speak the language. Maybe I should You should say, well, why don't you learn it? Okay. well, maybe I will. But I don't speak the language. And I and this Pennsylvania Dutch kid is a gringo. Okay, I'm not I'm not Hispanic. And it's hard for me to associate coach these guys up and really relate to them. And so we need help. And the help is going to come from a new position that we've created called a Hispanic ministry liaison. And we have a candidate for that who is ordained with the BFC. And is Spanish, and that man is Elliot Ramos. Uh, calling him to fill that position is contingent upon raising his support. We need to raise $60,000 for his support. We have about 20000 raised. We need to get Elliot up here by January. That's what I'm asking the Lord to provide for us. So pray that God would uh, bring people to support Elliot and bring churches to support him so that we can get him up here and he can start really working with these men and further develop our Hispanic ministries. Um, By the year 2050, that's in another slide pro or another PowerPoint that I have, by the year 2050, we're going to be close to 70% Hispanic in America. That's amazing. And we have been blessed as a Bible fellowship church to have some inroads into this through the past 15 years of working with Hispanic people and working with Hispanic churches and seeing it develop in our midst. So pray that God would bless with supporting, uh, raising the support for Elliot. Go back to that slide again, please. I want to mention, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier that the Bible, that Church Extension Ministries just doesn't plant churches. That's our primary charge. But we've also been charged over the years to help weak, struggling churches restart, revitalize. We don't take a lot of those projects on. We did in Long Neck, Delaware, a church that lost its leaders, was down to about 15, 18 people, and uh, was wondering whether or not this church would really survive or anything. Uh, We went in there. Uh, The denomination asked us to go in there and help them restart and revitalize. We went in there, and um, I sent my assistant, Mark Morrison, down, who is a great relational guy, and had him start working with the people. And then we started to to reach out in the community. We started to see people come in. And then we got to the point where we really needed a pastor uh, to further develop the work there. And we found, uh, or the Lord led to us, Andy Barnes, uh, Andy came from Florida, his father-in-law is on the staff of our Bethlehem Bible Fellowship Church, and Andy came to us through that connection. Uh, from those 15 people that didn't know whether they were going to stay or not stay, uh, today the church will be meeting and about 70 people will be meeting today, and it continues to grow. We should be able to disengage from it next year, having their own elders and their own uh, ability to uh, financially self-support themselves. So uh, pray for that to go continue to go well. We also get involved in connectional ministries, meaning that uh, when churches outside the BFC, church plants outside the BFC come to us and say, we'd like to see what, it, what it's like to become a Bible fellowship church. Well, we work with them. We test their compatibility to us and our compatibility with them. And we start to uh, connect with them and see how we can bring them into the denomination. Right now we're working with a church in Chestertown, Maryland, a church in Staten Island, New York, a church in Amherstburg, uh, Canada, and a church down in Collingdale, Pennsylvania, who's looking uh, looking to connect with us and the Bible Fellowship Church. So we have those, like I say, nuances to our church planting focus in connection and also revitalization. Uh some of our staff here, uh Mark Marson's my assistant, uh he's helping out down in Adams County right now and also over in Allentown. Don Skekel is a retired uh development person from Trans World Radio. And uh he is now oh I'm sorry, Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he's now helping us part time with our development, our donor base, things like that. Ray Bertolette, I guess you know this guy. He's uh grandpa and pa to some of the people that are here with you. And uh, Ray is my right-hand guy. I'll tell you, I, I really rely on Ray for a lot of things. I don't know if he gets tired of me calling him all the time and say, hey, Ray, do this for me. Hey, Ray, do that for me. But he does it, so, you know, good soldier. Uh, thank you, Lord, for sending Ray to us. Carol Snyder helps us out on special projects. Ruth Richards is our administrative assistant. Boy, I'll tell you, uh, she does a fantastic job. And Marcos Ramirez, the pastor of our Merida Bible Fellowship Church, is our church planning director in Mexico. And he has some exciting things coming up. He met a fella over in Cuba last year. And the fellow was, uh, this was before all the uh, negotiations or whatever, you know, the, all the diplomacy that was started going on in trying to uh, create relations with Cuba. But he met this pastor over there, evangelical pastor, who was starting a church there. He had about 40 people. He went back to visit him about two months ago. He now has 400 to 500 people. And Marcos is trying to see how we can connect, the Bible Fellowship Church can connect with that church in Cuba. So pray for that. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah. I asked you if you wanted to go to Naples. How many of you want to go to Cuba? Okay. So pray for that. And also, Marcos is working with a former Hispanic man who lives in Chiapas, outside of Mexico City, uh, who was going to be a church planner for us to to Lancaster, but uh, because of family issues down there, he had to go back and take care of his family. Um, he now is working with Marcos to plant a church in Chiapas, Mexico. So pray for Marcos. He has a lot of things going on. He is a he is a fantastic fella, very sharp and very much. Uh, Bible Fellowship Church. And just the last slide here, then we'll get into God's Word. What When a mission church is uh, prepping to become a particular church, That's those are the designations we give, uh, they have to meet certain criteria. They have to have at least two men who are going to be elders in the church, other than the church planner and the pastor. They have to have at least 20 committed adult participants to be the charter membership. And we actually look for even more of those individuals to be involved, and then they have to be financially self-supporting. And so each one of these works that you saw is moving toward those goals to be assessed to be a Bible fellowship church. And like I said, we have the church uh, church plant in Townsend, Delaware, uh, reaching the, that status next year. There's a a possibility, probably the probability of at least two more graduating in the next two years and the possibility of maybe even three or four more graduating in the next two years. So we praise God. In the past five years, we graduated four new churches into the BFC, and we're looking forward to how God will continue to bless us. Now, one of the things that these men have in common, they have a lot in common, but one of the major things is, That they know they can't plant the church. Sounds kind of strange, right? I already told you that we try to find gifted men who can plant the church. But in their heart and mind, they know they cannot plant the church. That it's the power of God through the gospel that reaches people and plants the church. You know, when I was thinking about that uh, power, the power of the gospel. Paul even said in Romans 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel, not at all, because it's the power unto salvation. It changes people's lives. It even changes communities and turns them upside down. When I was thinking about all that, I was thinking, okay, the question, what is the most powerful thing in the universe? And um, like a good modern guy, I put that question in my Google search engine. And uh, came up with all kind of answers to that, the most powerful things in the universe. Well, the one paper that was written by an MIT uh, scientist, I looked up and, uh, you know, if you're like me, you don't really enjoy reading MIT scientist papers. But um, I started reading it. And he claims that the three most powerful things in the universe are black hole energy, gamma ray burst, and strong nuclear energy. Well, that's great. And that's, that's foreign to me. I didn't bother reading the paper, and I did what a good good student does. That's it. go to the end and look at his conclusion. And so I went at the end and looked at his conclusion, and he said this. He said, a force in the context I'm talking about is any phenomenon in the universe that exhibits a powerful effect to influence on its environment. When I say power, I don't just mean the capacity to destroy A force should also be considered powerful if it can profoundly reorganize its environment in a constructive way. Well, again, I would propose to this scientist that the most powerful thing in the universe that does exactly what he's concluding here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when the early Christians entered into the cities and towns of the the first century uh, mission focus and target cities and towns, when those Christians started coming into those towns and their reputation preceded them, in Acts chapter 17, we're told then that the, end of the, uh, the inhabitants of those towns looked at those Christians. They knew who they were, and they said, here they come. They're going to turn the world upside down. Well, I like to think of it as turning the world right side up, but I'm not going to argue with the inspiration of Scripture. And so we'll consider turning the world upside down. The gospel has the power to change lives, even communities, and turn the world upside down. You know, in this city of Antioch, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, which was the scripture reading. Let me give you a little bit of a backdrop before we get into this city of Antioch. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Christ, before he ascends back into heaven, he gives some very important not more not really challenges but imperatives we call them commissions to the church he says in acts chapter 1 verse 8 you shall be my witnesses when the power of the holy spirit comes upon you in jerusalem judea samaria and the uttermost parts of the world the next day or maybe even hours later the power of the holy spirit comes upon His followers, the disciples, they run out into the street, and the church is birthed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up into Simon's portico and begins to preach the gospel. He preaches the first message of the church, the first gospel message of the church. And, of course, the result of that is that 3,000 are saved. The church is birthed. And the church keeps continues to move on, continues to grow. Some say by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, it's probably a church of 10,000 or more in the city of Jerusalem and its environs immediately around it. But you'll remember that the commission, that the command, the imperative was to go beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, the church is pretty comfortable pretty introverted, and pretty satisfied with the remaining Jewish in custom and tradition and also remaining in the city of Jerusalem. But God does something that really is, in our thinking, would be abnormal. Stephen, this wonderful evangelist and teacher and, uh, and really promoter of a missionary force out of the city of Jerusalem, is called in on the carpet to the Sanhedrin for what he's preaching, the gospel, about Jesus Christ. And he's called in on the carpet to the Sanhedrin, and he's asked to give a defense. Well, Stephen goes on and gives this running defense in Acts chapter 7, really this whole redemptive narrative of how God brought forth a Redeemer throughout the ages of Israel's history to the point of that Redeemer, the king, coming into presence on this earth. In Jesus Christ, the God man. Well, by the time they get to that point in his defense at the end of Acts chapter seven and the beginning of Acts chapter eight, the Sanhedrin is so enraged that they command the police of the of this of the temple under the leadership of Saul, soon to be converted to the apostle Paul. They command the police under Saul's leadership to take Stephen out and kill this individual, murder him in the stoning pit because he is preaching a blasphemous doctrine and challenging the authority of the Sanhedrin. So Stephen out there in that stoning pit is plummeted with all kinds of uh, stones, sizes and everything. And there in that stoning pit he looks up to heaven with the face of Christ on him and he sees Jesus standing before him. Well, We pick up a little bit more of the backdrop before we get to Acts chapter 11 in in chapter 8 there. Saul was in hearty agreement, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. On that day, a great persecution. Keep that word in mind. Some words here I'm going to ask you to put in your your memory bank there. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Keep that word in your memory bank also throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Keep those two geographical terms in your memory bank also. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation of him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He put the he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, there's certain words I ask you to put in your memory bank. Persecution. Who would have ever thought of the idea of spreading the church in Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria through persecution? And yet, that's exactly the means that God uses to get the church on the move. You take notice here, after this persecution, they're going into the second and third elements of the Great Commission. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It took this persecution to get the church moving out of an introverted, comfortable state into the communities and the cities in Judea and in Samaria. The second thing here, these were scattered Christians. The terminology in the Old Testament for scattering is this idea of a farmer going into the field with a seed bag on his shoulder, reaching into the seed among the and throwing the seed out Among the furrowed ground that stands before him. Now, I live over in Lancaster County, and you live in somewhat of an agricultural area around here too. But I live in Adamstown. There's a lot of farms around me. I have I have never seen a farmer go out into the into the field and throw this seed out there. Okay, usually they use these big uh, John Deere and New Holland uh, equipment to put their seed out in the land. But the idea here is that you and I, the church, are the seeds. And that God wants us to scatter into the world. Jerusalems, Judeas, Samarias, and eventually the uttermost parts of the world. And so we are these seeds of the gospel scattered into the world to bring the gospel and its power to lives that are unchurched and unsaved. In this particular case, uh, these individuals that were scattered out by the persecution went into, they were seeded into areas that weren't necessarily the most attractive areas for the church to be in or for the individuals of the church to anticipate being in. One of those cities was Antioch. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 11. There's kind of an interlude between this story from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 to 11, 19 through 26, where we see Paul get, Saul get saved, become the apostle to the uh, to the Gentiles, And then we see uh, Cornelius, uh, this interaction between uh, orchestrated by the Holy Spirit, this interaction between the Apostle Paul and between Cornelius to open up the minds of understanding that this isn't just a, a Jewish thing, but this gospel is for the Gentiles also. And so we have that whole Acts chapter 10 waking up the mind of the the Jewish Christians to the understanding that the gospel is for all the elect in all people groups throughout all the world. And so then we come to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And this picks up the story from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So then those who were scattered, the seedlings of the gospel, shaken out of, taken out of the bag of Jerusalem and thrown out into Gentile cities and towns and so forth, those who were scattered because of the persecution, again, God's means for moving the church out, that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. There still was this biasness on the part of those those Jewish Christians scattered out of Jerusalem. There still was this prejudice towards thinking that, well, this yeah, we, we heard about the Cornelius thing, but this is probably still mainly a Jewish thing. Well, there in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Gentile Christians, uh, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's something some things here I want you to take notice of. Even with human biases and prejudices, God makes sure that his gospel gets sent where he wants. Did you hear that? Even spite of human prejudice and biases, God makes sure he sends his gospel, he gets his gospel to his elect wherever they are, across cultural, across geographical, across social barriers. The second thing here that I want you to take notice of is that, that foremost means by which God uses to reach his ends of getting his people into the kingdom. And that is the preaching of the gospel. And in this particular case, the preaching just wasn't from a pulpit or from a soapbox on a corner. It was really in dialogue with people. Here we see all these terminologies of preaching, proclamation, dialoguing, speaking. People who were scattered out of Jerusalem, like you and me, were Dialoguing with people about Jesus. They weren't theologians. No trained missionaries or church planners or anything. They were people even somewhat fearful, you might imagine. They felt that persecution in Jerusalem. Now they're scattered out. Maybe they're even scratching their heads. Where are we going? What are we going to do? Well, God leads them. Maybe leads them to places that that they originally were from, and had come to Jerusalem earlier that year because of the Pentecost. But now they're going back into areas and places that were not necessarily receptive to the gospel. The city of Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the headquarters of Artemis worship, idolatry. It was the headquarters of pagan immorality. It was large. It was modern. And it wasn't the place that Christians really would have felt comfortable in going to. But yet that's where he scatters them. And they come into Antioch, this scattered people group, realizing they have one thing to do, the Holy Spirit impressing them with the priority of talking to people about Jesus in various ways. So that sets the introduction. The rest of the time I have with you, uh, if that's just the introduction, boy, wait till you see the next three points, right? Uh, no, we'll get through them pretty quickly. But that sets, the, that sets the stage. We're in Antioch. We have Christians that were scattered out to Judea, Samaria, and they come in talking to people about Jesus. Let's look at what happens when Christians prioritize Speaking, proclaiming the gospel to the unsaved and the unchurched. There are three things that happen here in Antioch. The first is repentance. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned <coughs> Excuse me to the Lord. I came here with a cold this morning, so... When uh, you leave and you want to greet me or shake my hand and I repel from you, uh, please don't think it's anything that I have against you. It's just that I don't want you to have be germinated by me, okay? All right. They came. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who traveled turned to the Lord. Well, that's that theological understanding, that turning. That's repentance. You head in one direction, and in this particular case, spiritual, spiritual turning you're heading in one direction, and you're heading toward death, damnation, separating God from eternity. You're, you're, you're confronted with a dialogue with a Christian about the gospel. And the Holy Spirit uses that to give you new life, the ability to believe, the faith to believe. And you crawl out to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. You repent of your sin. You acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. And God turns you to the cross. And you move towards that cross, and you find life and peace, and you find forgiveness and justification and reconciliation and repentance and sanctification and all the wonderful things that flow from the cross and the blood of Christ into our lives when we turn, are turned by God. I have three daughters. Uh, Natalie, Nicole, and Nina. And they're all grown. They're all married. And unfortunately, they're all over the place. One's in Denver, Colorado. One's in Charleston, South Carolina, swimming around down there. One's in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, But when they were little, and we would go places, uh, they had a propensity to be as adventurous as their father was. And they would kind of drift off into places. And Dad would have to go. Uh, Natalie, wait a second, grab her by the head, turn her around and say, no, not that way, this way. You see, that's that picture. And by the way, how many of you have ever done that with your kids? Yeah, I see a few hands. Thank you. Thank you. I see a few hands. Because some places I go and they nobody raises their hand. They, I'm wondering, do they think I'm a child abuser by doing that or something, you know? But I see that you've done that too when the gospel is proclaimed spoken dialogues and explained and taught to people we don't have to be theologians we don't have to be evangelists and so forth we just need to talk to people about their need for Christ and God's hand comes on that elect sinner and through our witness turns them and their repentance to the to the cross isn't that wonderful Isn't that wonderful that God does the work? That even when we mess up, God has his firm handle and those we're witnessing to and that are his and he's going to turn them. Isn't that wonderful? It takes the fear factor out completely. You know, we don't have to be scared of sharing, of witnessing. We have to be intentionally willing to do it, to talk with people about Jesus and see God's hand turn people to repentance. Well, that's the first thing that took place, repentance. Second thing that took place was edification, edification for the church, repentance for the sinner, edification for the church. If you look there, verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, don't you love the way Dr. Luke puts that? Witnessed the grace of God. He didn't witness people barking like dogs or speaking in tongues or bouncing off the wall. He witnessed... God's mighty power turning people through repentance away from their lives into a new life and their whole culture is changed. The words aren't the same that are coming out of their mouth. The thoughts aren't the same that are coming out of their brain. The desires aren't the same that are coming out of their heart, but they're changed. They're turned. And Barnabas comes in and says, that's the grace of God. Nothing can do that but the grace of God. And he rejoices. Can't jump the way I used to jump. He rejoices. I grew up in the city of Reading, row home community, and we had tons of kids in the several blocks around the house that I grew up in. There was never a want to field uh, three or four baseball teams or football teams on a Saturday afternoon and play sandlot baseball or sandlot football and so forth. One of those good friends of mine that I grew up with. Was, by, was named Woody, Elwood, Elwood. His name was Woody. And just by that name, you can kind of imagine him as being kind of a rugged guy, you know, a Paul Bunyan type of guy and so forth. And um, we, were good, we were good friends growing up. Over the years, I kind of lost track of Woody when I, God saved me at the age of 28, uh, sent me off to Bible college and seminary and then to pastor in Quakertown and then or Reading first, then Quakertown. But I lost track of Woody. But when I was pastoring in, in Reading, my office was uh, right offhand the of Boulevard below Reading High School and uh, on Marion Street. I walked out the office one afternoon uh, to go up around the corner to the parsonage where I lived, and I saw across the street Woody walking down the street, you know. Woody had gotten married, had some children. They bought a nice home uh, not too far away from the church there and was taking a walk down the street. And I called to him like we would call on a Saturday morning to gather our troops together to play baseball. Yo, Woody! You know? And, and Woody uh, caught my, my, uh, my attention, and he came over. We started talking. And um, about halfway through the conversation, right away, I picked up, you know, halfway, halfway through the conversation, not right away, but halfway through the conversation, I picked up there was something different about Woody. Woody wasn't cursing, which was kind of our norm when we were kids and so forth, you know. Woody wasn't crude, which was also our norm when we were growing up. Woody was calm, which wasn't our norm when we were growing up. Woody was different. And I said to him, I said, Woody, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Are you born again? And he said, yes, I am. And that conversation just started talking about the gospel his testimony my testimony and so forth and you know like barnabas when he came in and saw the grace of god turning these people's desires and affections and and mindset and their thinking towards christ and the gospel i saw that in woody saw it in my own life and i just jumped up like barnabas and rejoiced my brothers and sisters what a lesson for us as the Church of Jesus Christ when we hear about somebody coming to Jesus. You know, I've heard so many people over the years just kind of scratch their heads and say, well, let's wait and see. Let's see the fruits first before we really label them a Christian. My brothers and sisters, Barnabas didn't see any fruits here initially. He saw the turning. He saw the initial things that happened to all of us when we get saved. But he rejoiced. And my brothers and sisters, let's rejoice when we hear a testimony of someone coming to know Jesus, making a profession of faith, and let God work the details out. But let it build us up that the gospel is working, it's powerful, and it's changing lives. That builds the church up. That, You know, having three girls, all musicians, all athletes, I've gone to every athletic event, every concert, every recital and so forth that three girls can get involved with over a 20-some year period. And I remember bits and pieces vaguely of all those things. But you know what I remember specifically and clearly? Those individuals who are written on my heart because God used me in their lives to, uh, to lead them to Jesus Christ. Those are the people that we take with us into eternity. My brothers and sisters, when... God saves it builds us up and don't block that let it build you up third thing that happens here edification of the saints the church when we see people turned and coming to Christ repentance of course initially in that turning and discipleship you see the preaching of the gospel the sharing of the gospel and God saving a person makes a convert but it doesn't make a disciple. A disciple is an obedient, committed follower of Jesus Christ. That takes time. It takes energy. It takes work on the part of the church, the part of you and I, to come alongside somebody and pour our lives as well as, as our teaching into their life, the teaching of the Scriptures. And so discipleship took place here. If you look at verse 24, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul Appropriate individual to help him. I mean, Barnabas knew right away. I Barnabas could have went back to Jerusalem and said, "Hey, man, you ought to see all the people that got saved up there in, in Antioch. Boy, I hope they make out well. Let's pray for them." Yeah. Now, part of his, Barnabas saw the working of the Holy Spirit, the working of grace, people turning, and he saw little babies crawling around Antioch that needed to be fed, needed to be cared for. And he goes after one of, the most, uh, one of the most strategic individuals he could think of, and that was Saul, the Apostle Paul, to come over and help him with these Gentile Christians that are babies crawling around Antioch and need to be made into committed, obedient followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, and when he had found him, Barnabas, or Saul, I should say, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and tore considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christoses, Christians in Antioch, literally little Jesuses. They were so apparently attached to Jesus Christ, so vividly, so dynamically attached to Jesus Christ that the pagans, recognize them as following this Christos that they heard about creating so much problems. Brothers and sisters, wouldn't that be wonderful to have that mantle hung around our neck? Christos, little Jesus, that the unsaved, the unchurched here in this target community would say, there's a person that's following that Christ. There's a person that's living like he did. There's a person that, that is humble. Yuck. That's the mantle we want. We want the Jesus mantle hanging around our neck. Well, for an entire year, um, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Interesting, Dr. Luke tells us. Now this is a church there. It's an ecclesia, called out assembly of God, sanctified, set apart there in the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch, a church is sanctified, this sacred entity with Jesus as his head, is in the city of Antioch. You see, discipleship is imperative in the Christian life. Growing and learning about who God is and who I am in Christ brings about transformation in our lives and our communities. So three major things happen here because of the power of the gospel. The elect sinner turned to Christ through, its, through the preaching, proclamation, sharing, speaking, about Jesus in the city of Antioch. The second thing is that when this news reached the church, it built up the church. It edified the church. They still struggled a little bit with it, but now they saw, especially from Antioch on, now they see the imperative to reach the uttermost parts of the world. And then finally, um, the discipleship that took place in that church created A strong, visibly Christian church that affected the entire city. You see, God used these Christians Christians, uh, who brought the gospel to Antioch uh, to affect not just the individual Antiochans, but the entire city. This becomes, the city of Antioch becomes the missionary beachhead of the Apostle Paul. It's this city that Paul comes back to continually to give his reports to, seek support and prayer from. We're also by tradition told that, you know, that the first century church in Antioch was uh, the first bishop in this uh, church in Antioch was the Apostle Peter. There's debate on both sides here. But we do know that by the fourth century, the city of Antioch became the center for biblical studies in Asia Minor. It produced what is called the Antiochian New Testament which became the basis for the Texas Receptus, one of the basis for the Texas Receptus, which became one of the basis for the translations you and I hold on our laps here this morning. No longer is the city of Antioch thought of when it's mentioned as a pagan uh, idolatry center or idol center, but now when, we've mentioned the, uh, when we mention the city of Antioch, it's thought of as the, the center of biblical archaeological studies for Asia Minor. How did all this occur? It occurred through individuals like you and me being willing to intentionally talk to Jesus about or talk to people, the unsaved and the unchurched about Jesus Christ. And the power of the gospel did the rest of the work through discipleship. So what is a gospel centered church in conclusion? It's a church that's not interested in bigness. But boldness, a church that's going to have its people trained and willing and encouraged to share, to speak, to talk to people about Jesus. It's a church that's not interested in satisfaction, but sacrifice, no matter how big you are, giving yourselves up for the sake of the kingdom. It's a church that's not interested in comfort, but courage. Being able to move the gospel out into areas that are uncomfortable. And it's a church that's interested in, not interested in holding on, but in setting people free to follow Christ and to follow him in the places where he needs to be made known. May God continue to work in this church to grow it through the scattered seeds that you are in the community of York and its environs, And may, as you grow and develop, you always keep a vision for giving yourselves up for the sake of the gospel. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word that gives us such great understanding of Jesus, great understanding of the movement of the spirit, great understanding of the power that you hold, Father, and that you have embedded in the gospel. May we be intentionally willing servants of yours to share with people, speak with people about Jesus. And please do your work. Do your work among the elect that you have in these communities around this York church to be reached with the gospel from the people that are called the York church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.